Join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. The symposium will focus on the drug development process and is designed to connect, educate, and inspire rare disease advocates. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Pharma is developing drugs for a variety of rare neurological conditions with a pipeline of experimental therapies seeking to treat Phelan-McDermott syndrome, congenital myotonic dystrophy, and Rett syndrome. The company believes it can advance therapies efficiently by acquiring molecules that have already been studied either at preclinical or clinical stage and jumpstarting their development in a new indication. We spoke to Michael Snape, Chief Scientific Officer of AMO Pharma, about the company's approach to drug development, how it selects drugs and diseases to pursue, and its lead therapeutic candidates. Mike, thanks for joining us. No, Danny, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for giving us uh, AMO Pharma a voice. Uh, we very much appreciate it. We're going to talk about AMO kinase inhibitors and your use of this class of medicines to treat rare neurological diseases. Perhaps, though, we can start with AMO's approach. What's the business model? How do you go about selecting the molecules and, and diseases you choose to pursue? Uh, Danny, if you don't mind, I'll answer that in reverse. Uh, our interest in AMO pharma is what we call developmental disorders. Uh, an example or two of developmental disorders would be autism or uh, Down syndrome, um, disorders that can be recognized very early in childhood, are lifelong, uh, they don't go away like an infection to be treated, um, uh, and that impact the ability of a child to develop normally, so uh, would have impact on the individual's learning capacity and perhaps their ability not just to learn tasks, but to learn to communicate and interact and function in the real world. And we specifically are interested in rare neurodevelopmental disorders that have a known genetic cause, uh, usually a single gene that's become changed in some fashion that produces um, a characteristic set of uh, behaviors and clinical presentation on the part of the individual. Uh, and there are a great number of these disorders. Uh, each of them individually might be very rare, uh, only affect a handful of individuals. But if you aggregate them all together, it's quite a lot. And uh, as a company, AMO Pharma, uh, half of us are in the UK and half in the US. We, some of us have very personal interests in these kinds of disorders. And we have long-term experience uh, working on the advisory councils for research foundations and patient advocacy groups and close collaborations with uh, investigators in academia 
who are interested in these disorders. And what we do when someone you know, with greater skills than us um, works through the genomics and the proteomics and understands the underlying biology of one of these disorders, then we look at druggable targets that I've identified that open up the opportunity to modulate or change the underlying biology of the disorder. And then we will go to another company and say, hey, look, uh, you were developing a drug for cancer, for example, for whatever reason, you're no longer pursuing that molecule. That molecule addresses an important target in the kind of conditions we're interested in. Can we negotiate with you to gain access to that molecule? And that molecule would be something where the originator company has already gathered safety and formulation information and so on. So we're really arbitraging all their work to develop a potential medicine and all the work that's done by a patient research foundation or NIH to identify a target relevant. And we put the two things together and try and do uh, two clinical trials and a lot of basic science work uh, in order to try and get uh, a new medicine approved to increase options for the individuals and the families who are affected by these kinds of conditions. Your lead therapeutic candidate is AMO2 for congenital myotonic dystrophy. For listeners not familiar with myotonic dystrophy, what is it? Myotonic dystrophy uh, is an interesting disorder that runs through families. It's caused by, uh, I hope I'm not using too much jargon here, uh, an expansion repeat, a stretch of uh, what used to be called junk DNA. Uh, that's inherited and grows as it's passed on from one generation to the next. And what happens is uh, this piece of junk DNA codes or leads to the formation of a junk RNA, and that junk RNA is, is not normally present in, in normal physiology. Uh, when it's present with inside the cell, it interferes with its function and interferes with the final formation regulation of tissue. And what that presents as, um, as the generations increase, perhaps you'd have a mildly affected grandparent showing symptoms in their later years. That parent, grandparent might have uh, predominantly daughters, but not always, a daughter who's affected, who begins to show symptoms in her 20s or 30s. And if that individual has a, a child, uh, the expansion repeat and the piece of DNA that's causing this will be so big uh, that in a third generation, generally speaking, uh, you'd have a baby that would be born who would be very unwell, uh, who would probably go straight into pediatric intensive care, uh, who would grow up uh, if they survive, and very sadly, without some pretty severe medical intervention, they might not survive. If they do survive, uh, they will have learning difficulties uh, very often. Uh, they may show features very reminiscent of autism. Uh, they have a strange symptom of very profound sleepiness. Uh, and then, to varying degrees, have impacts in their muscle systems, their heart, uh, and their liver. So a kind of core of neurological symptoms, but also impacts in the rest of their body. And those individuals are going to struggle you know, to live independently, to uh, have self-determination, and be able to impact, uh, you know, that protect themselves from vulnerability. Uh, and of course, their parents, who may or may not be affected 
two are going to have to, you know, wonder as this child grows up, you know, what happens when we're no longer here? Uh, who's going to care for our affected child and so on? So a very troubling scenario that we'd love to be able to help. One of the challenges with myotonic dystrophy is getting a, a diagnosis early <coughs> in the progressive progression of the disease. Why is this so challenging? Uh, I think on average, it can take uh, that kind of middle generation, uh, you know, many years to get a diagnosis. Uh, that situation is improving. And I think it's really a consideration around awareness. Uh, for the children who have the congenital onset form, uh, the situation could be a bit different. Uh, they have some physical characteristics, like the shape of their face and so on, uh, that should enable a good pediatrician to realize um, what the problem might be. And then there is genetic confirmation of the diagnosis. So uh, for the generation that we're focused on, the congenital onset individuals, uh, hopefully the diagnostic process uh, moves at a, a bit more of a pace uh, than for the, the other generation. From a drug development point of view, does where you get a patient in the progress of this disease affect outcomes? And how do you think about that in terms of clinical trial enrollment? Well, interestingly, for the congenital onset patients, this is um, uh, what the RNA that's really causing the problems here is, is doing is it's preventing the final formation of tissue. So for a congenital onset individual, it's not like they have childhood Alzheimer's disease or perhaps something like uh, a, a, a degenerative condition. It's rather the other way around. The final step in format, forming synapses in the brain just doesn't take place. Uh, and that opens up, I mean, obviously that, uh, creates enormous difficulties for the individual in their development and impairs their function. But from a therapeutic point of view, what we're actually doing is triggering the final steps of completing development. That means, in theory, if our hypotheses are correct, that we should see quite a rapid response because we can form synapses in our brains quite quickly. And that should translate to not preventing an individual from entering into a decline, but rather pushing an individual onto a normal developmental trajectory and seeing it happen quite quickly. And what's fascinating in our initial studies, uh, even though our first clinical trial is quite small, uh, is we can push that development to occur uh, quite rapidly, uh, even in adults with the condition. So our first study, we looked at uh, individuals who were diagnosed very, very early in childhood who had survived into adolescence and into adulthood, and we treated them at that stage. Uh, and even within uh, you know, four to six weeks, we could see an improvement in their function. So because we're rescuing the underlying biology of these individuals, uh, although it's a devastating condition, the drug development aspect uh, it should be amenable to treatment. Well, what is AMO2 and how does it work? Uh, our understanding of how the drug works is evolving, but essentially, uh, if we recall, uh, myotonic dystrophy and genital myotonic dystrophy is caused by this uh, rogue RNA, if that's the right expression. What AMO02 does is triggers 
the destruction of that RNA. And we can actually show that in cells from patients. Uh, we break up that RNA and just take it away, take it out of the equation. So normal service can be resumed uh, within the affected cell. And how did you come to recognize this molecule? Uh, purely through uh, the mechanism I described at the beginning, uh, through close contact with research foundation, uh, foundations and academics. Uh, we had one research foundation uh, describe to us that the molecule, its development was being halted by its originator company. Uh, and they put us in touch with the chemist who originally invented it, who's based in the equivalent of NIH in Spain, in Madrid. And um, we spoke to her and said, tell us about the molecule. And she said, well, you, you absolutely must talk to Professor Lubov Timchenko uh, at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, she's done tremendous work with this molecule uh, on muscle cells taken from very young children with congenital myotonic dystrophy and seen quite remarkable changes. So we connected with her and uh, uh, away we went. What's known about it today? Well, uh, the previous company that developed it took it through trials. Uh, they were interested in its possible ability to treat Alzheimer's disease and also another rare neurodegenerative condition called progressive supranuclear palsy. Uh, and they trialed it. Uh, those data are published. Uh, they were what I would refer to as some signals of efficacy uh, there, uh, not conclusive, but signals. Uh, and they treated you know, upwards of uh, 400 patients for up to a year double blind uh, with relevant doses of the drug. So we gained from them a very comprehensive understanding that the compound is generally safe and well tolerated. Uh, and we also learned how to administer it and so on. So it's, it is an experimental investigational medicine, but at the point where we have begun to work with it, uh, we can leverage you know, a reasonable sized patient safety database. What's the development path forward? Well, uh, we've conducted uh, an initial phase two study to understand our patients and what the drug might do. And then we've had some great interactions over quite a period of time uh, with the FDA in the US uh, and come to an understanding with them uh, as to how to run a uh, pivotal study, a phase three study in children with congenital myotonic dystrophy, uh, which that study coupled with an extension study, if the data you know, uh, unfold as we expect, could potentially be sufficient to submit the drug for approval. You're also developing a second kinase inhibitor for Phelan-McDermott syndrome. What is Phelan-McDermott syndrome? Uh, so Phelan-McDermott syndrome is a developmental disorder. Uh, it's one of a, uh, a number we know of, perhaps as many as five, where a gene or a chromosomal change has caused the activity of a pathway called the RAS-ERK pathway uh, that uh, codes signaling within cells. Uh, it becomes much more active than normal. Uh, so we have an increase in activity of this pathway. That disrupts the normal formation of synapses and connections within the brain. And that means that central nervous system brain activity becomes altered. What that means for uh, this clutch, this group of disorders, uh, is the pr variable presentation of autism symptoms, 
learning disabilities, uh, and uh, to varying degrees, epilepsy. So an individual with Phelan McDermott syndrome, on average, you know, they would have, perhaps as adults, only a few words of language. Um, again, they would not be able to live independently. Uh, they would have difficulties learning to interact with other people with self-care. Uh, and about half of them will have epilepsy. Uh, and in some instances, that epilepsy can be very severe and difficult to control with conventional epilepsy medication. Uh, so a situation where there's you know, a real need to provide some new options. What is AMO01 and, and how so does AMO01 it work? AMO01 uh, was originally developed, again, by uh, not us, another company. It was developed as a compound that inhibits uh, the activation and increased activity of RAS. So it dials down abnormal activation of the RAS-ERK pathway. It was originally developed because the RAS-ERK pathway is very important in tissue differentiation, uncontrolled tissue growth, and tumor formation. So it developed as an anti-cancer agent. Uh, it went into the clinic. It was tested um, in about 40 patients with a variety of different tumor-related conditions, including brain tumors. Uh, for various reasons, the, the company who was developing it at the time uh, wasn't able to progress it, uh, and they were very good in conversations with us. Uh, they allowed us to access the molecule, uh, provide us with the data that they'd already obtained, uh, which showed that the compound, unlike many inhibitors of the RAS-ERK pathway, uh, this compound penetrates the brain. Uh, in fact, it can gain quite preferential access to the brain. Uh, so if we want to treat cancer pathways within the brain, uh, which is what we're trying to do, this is the ideal molecule to do it with. Kinase inhibitors have generally been used to treat cancers. How broadly have people looked at it for things like neurological well, conditions? Uh, not enough uh, is my short answer to that. Uh, the developmental disorders, uh, sadly and unreasonably, I think, uh, are neglected as rare in conditions. That situation has changed and improved. Uh, but the opportunity here is really you know, very exciting. Um, perhaps the analogy might be with leukemia. Uh, if we imagine leukemia you know, at the turn of the century, 100 years ago, that was thought of as a blood disorder. Uh, then it was recognized that uh, leukemia could be divided into a family of disorders. And then each of those disorders was characterized at the molecular level and tailored treatments were developed. Uh, and now, you know, there are options for people with the different leukemias. What we've seen with learning difficulties and learning disabilities is the same process. Uh, they have been broken down into separate disorders. Those disorders have been characterized at the gene and molecular level. And by, uh, for good reasons or reasons we can understand, cancer pathways become implicated in brain function. And there's a real exciting opportunity here for cancer treatments that penetrate the brain to be redirected away from cancer research into helping individuals with developmental disorders. Uh, and a number of groups have begun to do this using experimental models, preclinical efficacy tests. Uh, and we're very, very excited about this uh, and uh, really excited to see 
you know, what will happen to him observers today in 001. Kinases are involved in, in essential processes throughout the body. One of the challenges with inhibiting them is that you can get off How much of a concern is that in applying them to these conditions? Are there any issues with side effects that have well, become uh, apparent? What's interesting to us, and I mean, uh, there are lots of different molecules and uh, their side effects are variable. Uh, so I can mainly focus on discussing AMO01. I know less about other companies. AMO01 is, um, uh, the published literature on it has attracted our attention, shows that it is uh, generally quite safe and well tolerated. And uh, we are administering probably one fiftieth of the total exposure that would be used in the cancer setting. Uh, so the current study that's going on in Freedom McDermott syndrome, it, it's, the study is ongoing, so we don't know its conclusion. But our hope, at the very least, uh, is this will be very well tolerated. And uh, the propensity or the risk of off-target effects or uh, side effects due to drug treatment uh, would not be as you might imagine when you contemplate the, the concept of chemotherapy and so on. Uh, we're certainly not proposing a scenario where you know an individual or their hair would fall out and they would be very sick and that kind of thing. It, it's it's a pretty well tolerated concept. We're in the midst of a pandemic, the COVID-19 virus has disrupted clinical trials throughout the industry. Have you had any halting or slowing of clinical development uh, yes. as a result um, of this? Uh, if you indulge me here, um, you know, individuals with developmental disorders you know, are at risk uh, for something like myotonic dystrophy. You know, one of the co commonest causes uh, of death is community-acquired respiratory infection. So we have to be very mindful of the safety of the patients that are involved uh, through our trials and just through our interactions with patients and patient advocacy groups. Uh, we're in close conversation with individuals, partly to ascertain that they are okay, and partly to understand you know, clinical trial feasibility. And it, it, it isn't a good idea for us to be progressing patients into clinic just right now. Uh, so we are on a pause. Uh, in terms of clinical recruitment, uh, but we're working very hard to understand how we can get back up and running. And we're also understanding, uh, you know, that uh, COVID doesn't mean that these patients' critical needs have gone away. Uh, so we're caught between COVID and trying to offer options for the families. Uh, and we're finding solutions, uh, I hope, so that we, you know, the disruption isn't too long lasting. Michael Snape, Chief Scientific Officer of AMO Pharma. Mike, thanks so much for your time today. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. 
We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.